Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. The mummy or wrapped up in romance with Mel from Brodian Magazine. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Horror Vanguard. I am Ash, one of your two co-ghosts. Joined as always by... Is, is it me? It's still you after all of these episodes. That part hasn't changed. Hey, everybody. I, I am still co-hosting the show, and I am still no better at segues. How are we all doing? And in, in, in the background, you might have heard some, some perhaps uh, uh, impish laughter. Who, who might that be off in the distance? Hi, it's me. It's me, Mel. What's it's Mel. On? It's Mel from uh, from uh, Protean Magazine, the new Protean podcast, Protean Pirate Radio. How's it going, Mel? Oh, it's great. It's fifty five degrees in my apartment, and I am swaddled in like a giant comforter. So we're just hanging out. It's pretty. Good. I mean, those sound like ideal conditions. So it is going to be a very cozy podcast. Yes, very comfortable right now. So. But before before we get going any further, uh, Mel, can you let everybody know how we can support you and Protean and the new Protean podcast? Yeah. Um, so as most, I'm sure, we have quite a bit of overlap with listenership, but um, you can support Protean Magazine. ProteanMag.com is uh, where you can find all this great writing. Um, we're going to start discussing issue three and, and have some great announcements for that coming up. Um, you can also support the podcast, Protean Pirate Radio, at proteanpirateradio.podbean.com. Um, we have some really cool stuff, great interviews. We just did an interview with um, the workers at the Dandelion Cafe in Orlando, Florida, who just came out of a unsuccessful but militant and robust organizing campaign. Um, and the interview should be coming out here, you know, in the next couple of weeks or week or so. Um, and then you can also follow me on my personal Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash cold brood tool. Um, I have a lot of reporting from the protest this summer and I just shit post pictures of my cat. So, you know, it's worth it to follow me. <laughs> uh, I can, we uh, at horror Vanguard heartily endorse all of that. <laughs> I really, really, really recommend listening to that upcoming episode with the the dandelion workers. Their I think their story is really important for what a lot of organized labor is going to be facing. Yes, and you know they fuck man, they are just resilient. They are great people, and the conversation was super good and really infuriating um, to hear how they were treated by their bosses. Yeah. Um, but the campaign was fantastic to hear about. Oh, yeah. and, oh my god, like the just goosebumps inspiration. So it'll be, it's going to be a really good episode. We're taking our time editing it because the conversation was pretty long. So yeah. Um, when we, we follow Twitter to see release uh, notes and such. So yeah. links of course, in the show notes for everything, including, <laughs> including uh, protean magazine where only the most brilliant, uh, attractive, uh, uh, beguiling, uh, immortal, uh, <laughs> wizardly, uh, uh, ancient peoples get to publish and write. Uh, and in no way have both John and I been published in Brilliant <laughs> Magazine. Definitely not. Certainly no, certainly. Not. certainly. certainly. Not, 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 with a, not with a setup like that. Never. You, you two have never been published in Brilliant no. Magazine. It's great. No. Uh, what, I, what, I, what I will say is that I think it's super important that there is a vibrant and... Uh, expanding leftist uh kind of literary culture and like the work that protean has been doing is just incredible and yeah it's been it's been amazing to get to work with uh protean they put out they put out some genuinely just brilliant writing so please do support them if you can um but we are here to talk about uh well we are here to talk about a kind of high point of of uh horror mainstream horror cinema um 
easily, easily, easily. And to do that, Ash, it is it's time. We are talking about the Mummy from 1999. But uh, for the for the for the people who have for some reason never bothered to see this film, can you tell us just like as as plainly and as like just accurately and dryly as possible, what is the Mummy all about? What is a mummy? What is a mummy? The rote definition suggests a dry and chemical process, a deceased human or animal that has had its organs preserved by either intentional or by accidental exposure to a preserving agent, including chemicals, extreme cold, or an anaerobic environment, such that the normal processes of decay are arrested. But what does this mean? What about this definition suggests a cursed creature berobed in gauze, starking archaeologists through a tomb? Cultures all throughout time have created, intentionally or otherwise, mummies. European bog mummies, the famed Egyptian mummies, and the Chinchorro people of what is today Peru were the first society to intentionally mummify their dead. So then why are we here? Why is Brendan Fraser running from an undead Egyptian ruler? It all starts as so many things do, with a lust for the dead. The mummy emerges as an object of Western fiction through sexualized depiction of undead women. These mummies were eroticized manifestations of Victorian Orientalism, with luminaries like Bram Stoker and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uncritically recycling the political goals of empire. The mummy takes a turn for the monstrous when Boris Karloff dons the costume in the 1932 version of this film. It is from this point that the mummy begins a dark conversion. Mummies traverse a conceptual plane from being a diverse burial practice used by cultures all over the world and all throughout history to a mildly successful movie monster to a breakfast cereal mascot. So traverses the soul, rending terror of a real curse. To witness time and tide twist reverence and death into yummy mummy fruit-flavored cereal. The dark machinations of empire spare nothing, and only a critical dismantling of empire can truly free ourselves from this curse. Welcome to Brendan Yummy Mummy Fraser in The Mummy. <laughs> they just always make me so happy. <laughs> they just I love the I, I I love them. I hope I hope we never stop getting Ashes recaps of various horror films. Um, yes, we're going to talk about the mummy. Uh, where where shall we begin? I I am going to begin by doing another reading. This one much shorter, <laughs> and not by me. Um, so so we've talked about before on the show a bunch of times. I'm usually at odds with um, a lot of uh, film critics. Um, especially extensively, on extensively <laughs> recently in our host episode. Yeah. Um, but again, again, this is this is uh, Roger Ebert himself. This is someone uh, who usually uh, I don't know. I don't really agree with too much, but I think I think he really nails the spirit of the mummy for me. And he, and he wrote about this film. There is hardly a thing I can say in its favor, except that I was cheered by nearly every minute of it. I cannot argue for the script, the direction, the acting or even the mummy. But I can say that I was not bored and sometimes I was unreasonably pleased. <laughs> so good. I love it. I fucking love this movie. I like you know how like you always have like what was the movie that you watched all the time as a kid, even when you weren't supposed to be watching it? And it, you know, for me it was the mummy. Like the I have distinct memories of like having it on VHS and watching Mm -hmm. it on a tiny screen in my best friend's bedroom for an entire summer. I think we watched that film like twice a day for like three months straight. And I fucking love this movie. It's so good. <laughs> it's it's just a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun. Um, it's it's uh, this kind of like fun, like uh, retro. It has this kind of like retro feel as like going back to like old uh, newsreels and adventure stories from like the twenties and thirties, and which has like an older literary kind of tradition behind it. Um, which we're going to get into and in talking about some of the kind of like um, maybe more problematic and interesting discursive elements of what that means and how that presents various kind of cultural facets and things. But big picture, this is just a fun, good time. 
if you've never seen it you really really should i think i i think what you're going for is this is a a timeless high water mark of golden golden age hollywood yeah i agree <laughs> 10 out of 10 objectively the best film ever made Sorry. Uh, did, did, this is this is in my opinion this is the definitive entry in mummy movies based off of boris, Kar boris karloff's the mummy yeah uh, how, how big a category is that just for people who may not know um sprawling <laughs> <laughs> the vast. So, 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 so uh, calling back to my pricey, there was like mummies enter Western fiction as eroticized depictions of women. They're they're all uh, lusty and hypersexual, reanimated uh, Egyptian ladies. Essentially, Boris Karlov's uh, mummy was the first mummy as monster. Mm. um it's the, it's the i mean like they're sure like you know necrophilia and mummified corpses are monsters inherently but like this is the first one that's meant to be like the mummy as we know it today and it's it's from it's from that seed in 1932 that we get everything from yummy mummy cereal to the scooby-doo mummies uh to to the tom cruise dark universe hashtag the mummy hashtag cost universal studios 98 million dollars mm. Oh yeah, I'd completely forgotten that there was a failed dark universe, universal expanded universe project. Everyone uh, forgets that because universal memory hold the entire experience. Sorry, I was just I'm thinking about um, you know, the hypersexualization of, you know, mummies and Bram Stoker's The Jewel of Seven Stars, which is like a novel that was published in 1903 that is this sort of Really, it's a freaky book. It's very, it, it's very much you know gothic horror. But um, the main monster is this super erotic queen, Egyptian queen that is being you know part of this plot. They're trying to revive this this queen, um, this archaeologist, and you know <laughs> this film is definitely uh, not you know hypersexualized in that way but everyone is really hot in it i don't know <laughs> that is a weird connective tissue to kind of like the prehistory of the mummy is that in, in this one the mummy is hot and really sexualized but definitely not in the way that they intended yeah i mean um it's different you know uh every character is really sexy but that's not really the what we're you know what the focus is right it's just a very slick sort of like story um just a, just a real whoops all hotties moment here yeah pretty much like just great casting everyone's super hot and like but the story itself you know is i don't know it's really interesting i i was thinking about this the other day about how like the main story is about you know this egyptian priest essentially just trying to revive his fucking girlfriend you know mm -hmm. like and you know it's this very deep ancient love story is where we start um and then it becomes you know this catastrophic like almost world ending problem for the assholes who step in it you know yeah because you know it for, it goes from being like this kind of time spanning romance which is very clearly influenced by some of the themes in francis ford coppola's dracula like very obviously uh to suddenly to suddenly going oh no uh the 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 hot priest from egypt is so horny the world is going to end <laughs> we've all been there am i right <laughs> hashtag covid hashtag covid um... no but like that's the i mean that's straight out of the 1932 mummy like that, that's the plot it's literally imhotep comes back and he he scours uh modern day england for his lady love well, yeah. you know, that, that's the through line for the trilogy. Well, the first two, at least. And as and as you said, Mel, this has all got like a longer literary tradition, you know, like Richard Marsh's The Beat. Like Richard Marsh wrote about this a lot of like super sexy, uh, exoticized women, demon goddesses who were going to come and come to England and literally drive people insane because of their uh, uh, kind of mystical power. So like that was, it was a massive concern in like 
fin de siècle, late 1800s yeah. uh, European I'm literary like, culture. Thinking about like, you know, H. Ryder Haggard's She, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is probably one of the worst books ever written. I hate that fucking story. <laughs> <laughs> to your listeners, you do not have to read it. It is racist. It is disgusting. Uh, there is a lot of like really horrible shit in that book. But in terms of like, for the purposes of this conversation, like, you know, it's, it falls in line with the same sort of this uh, uh, exotic other is going to destroy the homeland, essentially, um, yeah. and is a huge threat to uh, empire, essentially, you know. Colonialism, baby. <laughs> oh, and we we are going to get into that discourse in just a bit. <laughs> Uh, I want to keep that. Can we just keep that as the segue? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to clip that and use that every time we need to transition. Just Mel, okay, perfect. Yeah. Mel okay. yelling about colonialism. Oh, um, so much we, to say about it. Well, let's talk about it, shall we? Let's talk about let's talk about how because we've already started to talk about like the the kind of literary and cultural roots of this story, the fact that it comes out of like victorian egyptomania uh which is inherently tied up with british colonialism and british empire so let's talk about what does it mean in the 90s in in because this is what 1999 am i right yeah what does it mean in the 90s then to take a story which is so deeply rooted in british imperialism and the violence of the british empire uh and try and go we're going to make this a kind of fun golden age hollywood adventure story Oh boy, where do we want to start with that? I mean, really, really, I mean, like we could just start right at, back at the beginning, right? Like Egyptomania arises out of, uh, you know, like the, the British Empire pillaging and raiding, you know, like Egypt for all of its artifacts and things. Like there would be parties where people would open sarcophagi to pull out mummies and just see what they looked like or something. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was, it was just the complete commodification and otherizing of this ancient culture for, well, for pure, purely uh just just racism and the impulse of empire well, but by the time mean, oh go on well i mean to to sort of expand on that you also have within consumer culture you have mummy tea you have mm-hmm. a specific type of paint color that was made from mixing the bandages of mummies with oil to create a certain brown color um, and, you know, it drives the sort of, this sort of like transparent consumerism drives the plunder of these ancient burial sites to their essentially extinction of artifacts. Right. Um, and it's, it was very, very popular for a couple of decades in the 19th century into the 20th century to have these sort of, you know, mummy opening parties, folks would take uh, they would travel to egypt on these uh expeditions specifically so that they could come back with these items uh that they would loot and steal from from tombs that had been opened and um it continued for so long that an entire you know couple of like millennia of uh archaeological artifacts have just disappeared because of just how widespread it was you know yeah, was, or, or if they disappeared, like destroyed. we just stole them. We just stole them and then refused to give them back mm-hmm. and publicly displayed them as as oh they, they, they it goes in the British Museum. And just the kind of sheer arrogance of of of, of empire is just embodied right there. Well, it's just an absolute. Like if you just thinking about the scale of the grave desecration that was going on as part of this sort of like consumer fad that was happening in the 19th century and early 20th, um, it's staggering, <laughs> like staggering, like thousands of mummies were brought back to England and other areas, including America, and were used in consumer prod, you know, products. Yeah. It just what you know at like tonics and and folks would put you know make them into pills because there were health supposed health benefits to consuming bodies like the cannibalism of capitalism like it's just a little too on the nose just a tiny bit you know with this particular thing so 
you know, you have this very, and, you know, the actual movie is very good at sort of delineating the treasure hunters from the archaeologists, right? Like mm. the the bastard Americans are the ones who are essentially showing up at Hamanatra because they want to steal treasure. And um, they're the ones who sort of start this ball rolling where they find, you know, the Book of the Dead. And then you have Evie, who is just so naive, so naive, who's reading aloud from this ancient artifact, right? And it, it starts, you know, the two of them start this like domino effect that leads to, uh, you know, the near annihilation of the world. Um, it's just- I, I love the unfailing instinct of every, of, of certain kind of protagonist in any horror movie when you find like, a weird occult book which is locked and covered in strange symbols you immediately go i need to read this aloud <laughs> right <laughs> right like very uh, relatable it, i mean seriously um you know it's like we actually have zero regard for self-preservation what does this doom book say you know i, I mean just to, to be fair to evie and and like the american raiders and everybody else for a second like if if someone knocked at my door right now and handed me a copy of the Necronomicon and it was like all wrapped up in barbed wire and like there were like signs and blood that said, please don't read this. Like I've got about a day <laughs> before I'm cracking that thing open. I mean, you just don't have to read it aloud, right? Like don't speak oh, it into existence, mean, you know, be a little I, smart I, about it. I think Ash has got a point though. There is something that I think is pretty, like that would, ha- that would happen. That would just happen. Uh, I think. Well, I, I think because it's it's, it's day. <laughs> that, that, that's something in this movie that I really like, and in that lore, and it's 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 Lovecraftian in this sense, right? Because it's playing on something inherently human, right? Like I don't think there are many people alive that if I gave them, if I gave you a haunted like record, and I was like, never play this, like that would break somebody. If I gave somebody else a haunted book, and it was like, don't read it, or if I gave somebody a haunted pizza, and I was like, please never bite into this. Like, yeah. like that impulse to discover, I think, is like a ruling factor of the human condition. I mean, yes, certainly. That's a fair assessment if someone Haunted handed pizza. me. I mean, I regularly seek out 16th century spell books because I'm fucking curious about it. So, you know, like I'm probably playing with a lot of cosmic forces I probably shouldn't even be touching. But um, to be fair, though, this concept of curiosity is often curiosity and exploration and you know expeditions for examination is often sort of this excuse for the furthering of colonialism among uh, 100% among folks you know among these sort of quote well-meaning archaeologists anthropologists and the like uh, oftentimes they will sign on to colonizing projects uh, because it affords the greatest benefit for them to be able to continue to quote do their research right or they're okay, using there is, it. There is literally know. a perfect example of this in the film, isn't there? There's so, like you said, there are two parties that end up interested and in trying to get to Hamanoptra. There is Evie and her brother who break Rick out of jail to act as their guide, and then the only other survivor from the Hamanoptra massacre, which the film opens with, is Benny, who has like glommed on to this party of of like the most American Americans. That They're it's so possible. hilarious. It's great. <laughs> but they are bringing along exactly this kind of person that you were talking about, Mel. They're bringing, right. they're bringing along this like aristocratic Brit who is there to do his research. And that while you were talking, the moment that this made me think of is that once they've, once they've like brought Imhotep back from the dead, a swarm of locusts comes down mm-hmm. uh, and he's lying like back clutching this book covered in locusts and goes, what have we done? And I'm like, dude, you happily got two of the people you, you, you got working for you melted by acid. And that was fine. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> now- <laughs> just, yeah. It, yes, exactly. You know, you have this very, it's very, so oh my god there's so many layers to this movie like <laughs> i mean i think a, i think taking a post-colonial analysis of this film has been extremely exciting for me i i'm glad that i you know get a chance to do this but uh it's uh, can we 
I don't even know where to go from here. There's well, so, much. so I think I think there are there are two kind of important things to carve out. Uh, I think out of what we've been talking about, and that's like we're almost creating a space where Rick and Evie are not as bad as the others, and they're they are as bad as the others. Like there is no meaningful delineation. The only meaningful delineation is like the the, the Americans are just kind of crass, and and they're they're Americans. They're here to make money. But Rick is Rick is also there to make money. Rick is there for profit and glory and victory. Evelyn's there to stick it to all of the the people back at the university back at home. They're all there for the glory of their particular empire. Nobody's there because they're like want to preserve this. I love that. I love that though. Bainbridge scholars, like, come on, <laughs> right? It's perfect. Yeah, it's no fucking yeah, such but- a good pun. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. But you, you make a really good point where there really is no meaningful delineation between the the well-meaning archaeologists, quote unquote, um, and the, the treasure hunters there for profit. Yeah, All it's... of them are desecrating uh, an Egyptian uh, temple, essentially, uh, for their own personal profit. And they all have their reasons for doing it, right? And yeah. it's, it's really interesting... You know, uh, clearly this film is being made from inside the Imperial core, right? So you're casting these adventurers as uh, heroes of the story. Um, but they're all, it's just, you know, I think in the notes, notes for the show, I said, you know, um, this extremely human backstory with Imhotep and Anaxun Amun, who are just, you know, in love with each other, right? Um, and the consequences they face for that. And then, you know, it gets drop kicked out of the frame because he becomes this and he becomes othered and he becomes an inhuman demon villain that a ragtag group of colonizers are dispatched to eliminate right Um, and that's that that goes for the vast majority of egyptian people in this film that is ostensibly set in egypt like they they become they become zombies yeah yeah they literally become inhuman zombies at one point I just want to pick up on what Ash was talking about. And like, I actually think there's a really interesting delineation here between uh, something that Edward Said talks about in um, their book, Orientalism. So it starts with an epigraph from Benjamin Disraeli. Um, and the Disraeli quote is the East is a career. And that's mm-hmm. that's how that's how the Orient, the East, was thought about in the days of empire. And it's very important that our point of view character is Evie, right? Not just not just not American, but very received pronunciation English. Uh, and why is she there? She's there because she's a librarian. She's interested in knowledge. She's interested in in building her career. Whereas in kind of con- contemporary imperialism is uh, you know post lenin we know this is driven by the super extraction of surplus value from anywhere in the world so you have i can't believe i'm just trying to offer a, a leninist reading of this film <laughs> <laughs> so uh in short the mummy 1999 is a direct sequel to imperialism the highest stage of capitalism by uh, by vladimir lenin but no <laughs> okay. I, I need I need to pick up on this thread because you're completely correct, <laughs> and I think I think I think the mummy the mummy is 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 again to do so, somewhat of a, I guess like more less a Lenin inspired reading and more a Leninist inspired reading, but like the the mummy as a film franchise is pure revisionism, right? This is this is revisionist history for the empire. Right, because yeah, you're, the the Middle East is a site of of primitive accumulation in in the Marxist sense, right? It's 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 capitalists extracting value from land, and like by the time we get to the mummy in 1999, right, it's not weird that we have a mummy movie, right? The Gulf War ended eight years ago. The Middle East is still this site of violence and conflict and chaos and capitalistic extraction, mm-hmm. and right, it's no it's no surprise that we have a mummy movie today, right? This is the forever war that is staged in the Middle East. These mummy movies are are you know passion plays of empire. There are heroes adventuring off and like the figure of the mummy is really, really, really important, right? Like what I was getting at with the whole yummy mummy analogy is that like we we as empire, um, I really shouldn't say we, I guess, but like empire does this as a function. It takes an entire culture, reduces it to its to to a, a simplistic and detached and ancient belief, and then turns that into something it can objectify. 
right? So, so when we're when we're watching these shows of people gallivanting through the Middle East, it's it's not a contemporary discourse of like what we're actually doing in the Middle East. It's not engaged with that. It's instead engaging with the fantasy of these mummies. Yeah. Well, and that's you know that is has always sort of been you know a, a prominent feature of the adventure story um in fiction of empire right like it's always been this sort of um you other the the colonized sort of areas right uh, they are places sites of exploration you know you have this whole concept of exploring the quote dark continent in africa right uh, where these are sites of not only just capital exploitation and extraction, but also conquest. And um, the empire benefits from stories that sort of pit the adventurer, uh, the explorer against um, uh, savage and violent and backwards uh, black or brown population, essentially. Yeah. Um, and British literature has a uh, robust literary tradition um, that sort of these stories come out of um, that are, you know, um, worth reading, but purely for the critique. You know, it's you can it's very transparent the actual reasons why these stories are written, and this continues on into our modern imperial globalist imperialist uh culture essentially it's, it's really important to look at monsters more broadly too right because you are absolutely correct with that analysis like where does dracula live dracula lives in eastern europe where, yep. where backwater people believe in vampires and cursed wolves right the mummy the mummy comes from the middle east where the same thing's going on but with different paint on it the all of these all of these monsters are emerging from these othered cultures that are that often find themselves under the thumb of of you know the british empire and now the american empire right yeah and these stories are designed to basically turn uh well to use said's term to turn to turn the orient into a stage right it's emptied of content which the uh, the imperial core uh, projects its own fantasies into right you get so so this is why i think one of the mo most interesting minor characters in this film is um our RAF pilot uh of, well the air yes. core pilot uh, Winston Havelock who turns up in one scene and then in uh the, in the, in what i call the flying level of the mummy video game <laughs> um but he is there precisely because and he he dies precisely because the fantasy of empire is kind of exhausted because we're in now an, in in an interwar period right he all he talks about is the fact well the war's over all of his all of the soldiers that he fought with have all been shot down and what he wants is not a retirement or a life away from the theater uh, the stage, but to go down in glory. Because that's the whole purpose of that kind of narrative, right? Historically speaking, John Buchan, H. Ryder Haggard, Rudyard Kipling, you know, they were about kind of projecting this mythos of imperial conquest as a kind of moral necessity. Right. Well, have, Winston Havelock is a fan, fascinating character, right? For him, the war never ended, right? Um, and which war, whichever war, we're not exactly sure. Um, but clearly, he has never left Egypt uh, from the point of his, you know, being discharged from his, uh, you know, His Majesty's Air Corps. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, he's such an interesting character because for him, uh, he sort of embodies the, the, the spirit of the imperialist sort of conquest. And the failure of it in many ways. Um, and it's, I don't know, I find him, he's so funny and I think extraordinarily racist. <laughs> his, oh, yeah. his being funny is really important to, I think, how we uh, analyze his character. Because mm -hmm. Winston Havelock is, is a buffoon, he's a fool, he's a foil, right? Everyone else in this movie, like uh, Brendan Fraser is a very funny actor. 
and there's a lot of like comedy bits through this whole thing. Um, it's it's just a silly farcical movie to begin with. Right. But like all, all of the characters have like a they, they have an ounce of seriousness to their needs and their wants there's and their gravity to them. Yeah. Yeah. Except for except for Havelock. And I think this is really important, right? Because like your your point is super correct. He never left Egypt, right? He's still doing the work of empire there that he was originally doing there. Mm-hmm. And his being this comical, almost out of time buffoon type of character, while everyone else is ostensibly a bit more contemporary to when the movie is released, is is it's doing an ideology. Right. Like what we have here is is a display of like, oh, no, like those were those were the backwards days when we did those horrible things for Empire. Look at how silly and garish it would be today to act that way when Brendan Fraser and, and Evie and the the American uh, cell sword types. They're all there to do the same thing that Havelock was doing just with new aesthetics. Right. Well, it's the sort of modernization of, of the uh, imperialist, uh, you know, the. The motives are the same. The methods are often the same. They just get a new coat of paint, essentially. Precisely. And and it's, it's simply because it's impossible for Winston to conceive of an existence outside of, you know, the Imperium. You know, his 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 death, if anything, seems to come as a bit of a relief to him. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, it's not seen as a as as kind of tragedy. Like the plane goes down. And Rick kind of dashes back in and there's like the kind of friendly pat on the back and is like, goodbye, Winston. Done. That's it. What? He's never mentioned. Never mentioned again. Yeah. And he literally sinks into the sands of Egypt. Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) The metaphor is fairly plain there, you know? Um, And it's really, you know, it's interesting I I will I will return to Havelock when we get towards the our analysis at the end of the film because I have some thoughts about that. But um, I just there's a God there's so much about this film that I just love so much. I just I find the you know the when they're actually in Hamanatra um, the first time um, I find it really interesting the, the ways that in which uh, these minor characters are sort of uh displayed um you've got the americans and our our rich uh archaeologist who's employing egyptians to help them um excavate right and then you've got um evie and rick who are kind of doing it themselves on a different part of the uh, area but they're all sort of excavating this place sort of willy-nilly and um desecrating the whole area um, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about just, you know, we mentioned the zombie Egyptian is in Cairo, but just like this, the, the sort of othering of any sort of Egyptian character in the film. What are your thoughts on that? That we've sort of centered the imperialists um, and, and how the film treats those people. Well, <laughs> I'm going to jump out in front of Ash. <laughs> As, as is customary, I will answer first. <laughs> yeah, so um, how, how I understand that is through um, Arnold Vosloo, who plays Imhotep in this movie. Um, so he's, he's said about how he approached the role of Imhotep is that he was going to play it totally straight. And for him, he's doing Romeo and Juliet from the perspective of Imhotep. Right. He, right. He's, yeah. he's trying to win back his love in a world that doesn't want that to happen. Right. So something something that he should have had when he was alive that he's being denied again. And, and he's really tragic and haunted. And that's Frankensteinian. Right. Like that's that's literally Frankenstein's character. And it's also it's also Dracula's character, because like we never I say this all the time on the show. But Dracula is a novel about a bunch of horrible uh, agents of empire destroying and slaughtering cultures they don't understand because we never hear from Dracula. Right. The monster does not speak. We don't know. We never learn what Dracula wants, what he needs, what his goals are. We just know what his enemies say they are. And we have the same thing going on here with Imhotep. Right. We we can't access Imhotep's landscape. And it's different because it's a movie and we see him act and we see his actions. 
but it's framed and eternally framed in the context of the people who were raiding his culture and raiding his very life for the, I mean, like for in the Americans, they were doing it for fun and for money. And for the British people, they were doing it for like, I don't know, the glory of the queen or something like, like this is their own personal glory. I mean, they're right? stealing, they are stealing Anox and Amun's organs. Yeah. You know, yes. Literally taking her, her bodily organs. Um, and and stealing them away from from the same and, place and and this this uh is is where what what horror is in this film emerges right because the horror of this film is the imperialist colonialist violence of these americans and of of the bembridge scholars and and the british <laughs> empire being returned upon by Imhotep, right? Because, like, what's what's the what's the first thing he takes? Is that he takes eyes and he takes a tongue, something to see the situation and something to be a something to speak. Uh, so, you know, I I I don't want to kind of push the post-colonialist reading of the film too far, but there is something really important there, right? Literally taking back the body, uh, it, and that's seen as that's seen as horrifying. By uh, by the Americans who end up being uh, basically turned into the the gooey mummy mummy that they covet so much in the first place. Well, I mean, you could certainly. I mean, I would take the reading that far, right? It, it is like a literal representation of talking back to empire, right? To be yeah. able to to uh, essentially uh, steal or take what is rightfully his, um, eyes and a tongue with which to, uh, engage with the sort of, um, the violence, the unrelenting violence of empire upon this space and upon himself. Right. And in order for him to sort of begin the process of talking back, that needs to be the first thing that he does. Uh, and there's, there's something really tragic, <clears throat> Oh, Jesus. There's something really tragic about this too, right? Because there he he needs he needs Western eyes and a Western tongue in order to begin to complete his work. Yeah. And again, this is like this is calling back to Dracula. Like the closest we get in Dracula to knowing Dracula is is Jonathan Harker's time spent in Dracula's castle. And what what do we learn about Dracula? He wants to learn to speak English like someone from London, and he wants a home. Right. These are these are people whose cultures have been uh, obliterated by by the forces of empire, and they're they're trying to to claw their way towards any firm footing in a world that's trying to destroy them. And the movie, the movies, and the books, and the kind of media surrounding these things forces that into a position of monstrosity. Right, right. Because on its face, it's a very human love story. Yeah, that's the whole point, and it's become this sort of you know demonic world ending catastrophe and you know it's brought upon the main characters because of actions that they did right like Imhotep's not you know doing this out of any sort of you know I, I don't know that like the 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 archaeologists and the Americans and Evie and Rick they bring this violence upon themselves mm -hmm. and they cannot you can't honestly blame Imhotep for um fucking trying to end the world honestly <laughs> i would end the world for someone i love fuck uh i i like that we have then quite convincingly constructed what is a, a, a kind of like revolutionary romanticism of the mummy and i really like that i really like that because you know i i i don't want to i don't want to kind of like quote my problematic fave Zizek too many times, but this is something that he says, which is that the 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 ultimate terrifying freedom is is that of love because it is something that kind of transcends it has the potential to kind of violate all other kind of normative standards and rules if you uh, have somebody that you feel for and are are connected to that deeply, what won't you do? you know there's a terrifying freedom to it um that in this film goes even beyond death, which is the whole point of mummies in the first place, right? This idea of the persistence of the self beyond death into another kind of life. Well, I mean, even like, even uh, Imhotep's final words uh, sort of play into that, right? Death is only the beginning. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's, 
I think it's interesting that, um, like, I don't know, the movie's just so transparent about it. Um, and it, it doesn't take much to kind of see how easily you don't even, you know, you can gloss past the, the fucking colonialism, baby, uh, because it's so fucking entertaining. I'm actually glad you brought it up. This is sort of like a refashioning and a revision of uh, colonialist empire building history. You know, what do you guys make of the fact that Evie is part Egyptian? That like her mother is Egyptian and her father is English. Well, there's a couple of ways I think you can think about this, right? So firstly, we can see this is like, oh, it's a 90s kind of move to make this, to kind of actually gloss over that metaphor a little bit that's really explicit in the Karloff version uh, and is very explicit in all of the kind of cultural context that informs it. So you go, well, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's kind of try and just, we'll just paper over that, you know? Um and also, I'm a little bit skeptical that uh, they really committed to that be to to making uh, Evie part Egyptian beyond that, given that it's uh, it's Rachel Weiss who has the perfect cut glass received pronunciation accent, uh, and does not look as if she spent a lot of time in Egyptian weather, for example. So I don't know. I'm. I, I. There's a bit of me that's like, is this a kind of just like cynical ploy to make it seem, you know, it's it's just a fun story. We've stripped out the the metaphor of our rampant defense of empire. <laughs> well, I mean, in the second film, they absolutely lean into it. You know that she is part Egyptian and that she is actually descended from, um, or reincarn reincarnation of an Egyptian queen of Nefertiti. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could certainly say that they had a sequel in mind when they wrote the, the script for the first movie. But um, it's certainly interesting to think about um, the concepts of, like, assimilation and sexual yep. conquest and, mm -hmm. um, you know, what that looks like in the context of this film. Um, particularly, I mean, John, you had a, you made a good point before we started recording about uh, the original sort of character name for Evie that she was supposed to be related to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in the, I think in the original draft, her name was going to be Evelyn Carnarvon because she was supposed to be descended from Lord Carnarvon, who was present at the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. Uh, and the kind of original premise uh, was that her and her brother were going to be sort of the cursed children of of Carnarvon for for which I actually think would have been potentially a really interesting route for the story to take because it suggests that whatever curse is there is the product of imperialistic looting, right? Not it's good. Not in in uh you know ancient Egyptian religion and and magic. Well, to a certain extent, I mean, the curse still exists as a result of looting, right? Um, but yeah. I yeah, yeah. I definitely would have liked to have it be, you know, folded into a little bit more the identities of, you know, um, John and Evie. And uh, certainly <clears throat> would have made the entire story a little bit more interesting um, from that perspective, rather than, you know, John and Evie, this is... You, you feel like this is a thing that just happens to them instead of something that's like necessarily tied up in their identities as being benefactors of imperialism in the Middle East, uh, you know? Oh, no. My, coincidentally, my brother brought home another cursed artifact. Whoopsie doodle. Where did you find this? And he says, oh, I got it on a dig down in Thebes. And it's like, you're doing it as well. Right. <laughs> Just leave that stuff alone. You know, right. you know, the true, the true 2020 version of the mummy would be like, like, like what, one of those like YouTubers who are famous for being famous and doing like videos where they just dab and stuff, like getting raided by the FBI for having like cursed Egyptian artifacts. <laughs> like that's, that's the real 2020 spirit of this. But I think, um, 
Um, like John Evie, is just the Jake Paul of the next. <laughs> is that what we're going to do there? I, I mean, incredibly, yes. <laughs> if, you, if you look at look at the history of J- Jake Paul and corpses, and you will immediately see the truth of this. Oh my God! Sucks. And and of course, fail sons from the nineteen twenties have an awful lot in common with like rich do nothing YouTubers. Yes, fail sons true. be failing. That's very true. But um, so there's something there's something uh, that I think is really important about Evie being half Egyptian, and that's how this movie depicts her being half Egyptian. I think that's really, really, really key to understanding this because Evie is a reboot of a character from the original called Helen. In the original movie, um, Helen is the one that Imhotep is interested in. She's the one who's a half Egyptian that that carries the soul of his long lost love. But in the original movie, we get this sequence where Helen is kind of bemoaning the state of modern Egypt. And she's wishing it would return to its former glory. Hmm. But the thing to understand here is that modern Egypt is like a, you know, dominantly um, Islamic society. It's like 90% Islamic in Egypt. And like, there's something incredibly Islamophobic about that in the original movie, definitely, but also in this new movie, because her being half Egyptian isn't played off as being at all connected to contemporary Egypt. It's all connected to this fallen mythological, ancient pre-Islamic type of Egypt which maps directly on to the Islamophobia that shapes American politics. Very true. Well, and, you uh, know, colonialism. Yeah, it, a colonialism, it, baby. Like, it's, it's that meme of the two astronauts and it's like, <laughs> so cool. it's, it's all colonialism. It's all, it always, always was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like, I think that's a really good, important point to make. And that calls to another, you know, pretty big signifier in post-colonial theory is that when treating these spaces, when you need when you need to empty a space of its people, culture, its way of life, in order to uh, either create this stage for you know the power play that exists in empire, or to extract it uh, resource from it, a lot of what that is is this sort of like there's this nostalgia that happens where. Uh, you you always call back to a, a simpler time, you know this this very illustrious culture that doesn't exist anymore, um, because you've defanged the culture as is, right? Yeah. It is no longer, uh, you know, it's the sort of shift from the ignoble to the noble savage, right? Yeah. Once you've defanged a population, either literally you've you've taken away weapons, you've oppressed them to the point where they cannot resist or rebel. You've occupied a space. You've uh, removed the most dangerous parts of its culture and the way of life. Um, what's left is now something that can be um, venerated, and you treat it with a certain level of nostalgia. Um, you know, uh, like oh, it's vanished. The same concept of like the vanishing red among um, Native American uh, treatments in colonial mm-hmm. America, right? Mm-hmm. This well, they're just gone. You know, like. Oh, I wonder what happened to them. We didn't kill them, you know. <laughs> what a like, twist. Yeah. you know, like, oh, they're gone now. Like, what a time! It was so beautiful, you know. And so, it's an actual, like, legitimate, often conscious sort of uh, uh, way of treating the colonized culture, um, and to reinforce the power structures that you've installed by expanding your empire and oppressing and colonizing that place in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that, I think that is a spot on analysis <laughs> of, of Brendan Fraser in the mummy. So yeah. Basically but, what we're saying is that Imhotep needs to read Franz Fanon. Yes. Uh, essentially. Yes. <laughs> that- yeah. Or more, I guess, I guess more accurately, uh, uh, Brendan, Evie, and crew need to read Fanon. I think Imhotep's really on it already. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, but uh, speaking speaking of Imhotep and Brendan Fraser and Evie, um, I think we're we're nearing the end of this episode, and there's there's a final point that we all wanted to talk about before before we closed it. And I think it'll be pretty pretty light. It won't be light. It's our show. It'll be fun though. <laughs> let's let's talk about why everyone in this movie is kind of like weirdly attractive in their own way. Super hot. Oh my God. Everybody in this film is hot. <laughs> Literally everyone. This movie it's got it's got something from everybody. If if you like if you like himbro himbos, if you like library doms, if you like uh Instagram <laughs> fuckboys, this movie this movie has someone for you. I am in love with Ardeth Bay. 
<laughs> I think he is so hot. I have a huge crush. I also have a huge crush on Evie. Evie's like a bisexual icon, honestly. I just love Correct. her. Like, straight uh, up. You get more of those vibes in like the second film than the first film mm-hmm. when when you're you've got uh you know the reincarnated Nefertiti and Anaxima Moon like fighting each other and like half naked. Oh god. Let's just say that like before I even knew what was going on with my sexuality, like this movie was like doing some weird shit <laughs> to my brain. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I don't know. They're just so hot. It also makes imperialism hot, babes. Like, <laughs> like if we really want to like tie, it's not going to be. It's not going to. There are no um, shallow parts of this conversation that aren't about fucking colonialism. But you make it sexy. You make you make it all yeah. sexy, and then people are more interested in talking about it. I guess. Uh, I think. I think. Yeah. I mean, like something. I think that's kind of like. To, to throw to throw like the icy water of discourse <laughs> into this conversation yeah like there there is something that's really compelling about um I think like like there's two there's two things that jump to mind immediately for me and one is the fact that um Brendan Fraser's character and Evie have very similar aesthetics and very similar styles and and mildly conflicting personalities but they're almost conflicting they're conflicting in a way that's complementary like the two of them aren't a complete person but together they are and there's something there's something that's like really interestingly bisexual about that mm-hmm. because the characters are almost swappable for each other in a certain way and then you've got Imhotep's character who literally has to have the parts of other men inside of him in order to be complete mm-hmm. yep and I, I think i think there's some kind of like metaphor here i don't really know I'm not a movie mm. critic. I really can't comment. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, no, I would agree. I would. I would totally agree. And I think the whole point of these, uh, of this kind of story was they were supposed to like. It's it's part of like the adventure that you're supposed to give yourself over to, right? It's very deliberate that they're all hot, uh, and that the. One of the only uh, Egyptian characters that gets significant screen time is Ahmed Jalili's character, who gets an absolutely brutal ending because he's like the comic relief mm. prison prison warden <laughs> who who they constantly make jokes about the fact that like he smells and he's really stupid. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's very deliberate that they're all like. Uh, sort of slightly mind-bendingly gorgeous in various ways because it's designed to appeal to everybody. Yeah, massive, massive air quotes about who gets to count as everybody with that one. Well, <laughs> well yeah, exactly. Can we? I know we're getting low on time here, but it it may okay. So Benny's not a conventionally attractive man. He's Hungarian, right? So he's an Eastern European. Um, and you know, the prison warden's not conventionally attractive, right? Um, and, and he's Egyptian from Cairo. All the rest of these folks, with the exception of Ardeth Bay, um, are Westerners and they are attractive by you know Western standards. So, yeah, you know, there's there's definitely a, a comment to be made somewhere in there, you know. But but that was always that's always been part of the you know all of those nineteenth century texts that we were talking about had their own kind of sexual tensions to them as well right that was that was absolutely part of the narratives which formed the very kind of DNA and structure of this film right God I love this movie so good so should we, good. Should, we, should we talk about Benny Yeah I would love to. Do yeah, we have time to? About Benny. Let's 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 talk about Benny. Uh so Benny and Rick, we are introduced to them uh when they are both in the French Foreign Legion. Uh again, colonialism, baby. It's yeah. it's, it's all about that. Um w- and they are under attack from uh an I, I don't think it's it's ever identified who it is that they're fighting, right? Uh, or have I got that wrong? No, I don't think it is. But those are uh, those are real dudes on horses. Fun fact: uh, when they were filming all those scenes, the the strategy was 
let the guys on horses kind of do whatever and react to what they're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. Good strategy. Uh, Benny ends up running away and then later survives the the, the massacre at Hamanaptra and then leads the Americans there and meets the newly uh, resurrected uh, lonely boyfriend, Imhotep, who is just looking to find some body. Uh, and th- uh, this is a bit that I, I we wanted to talk about, which is like, what is the relationship like and how is that relationship framed between Benny and Imhotep? Oh, man, this is that original, you know, that first interaction between the two of them is one of the more transparently racist and anti-Semitic parts of this film. Um, and it's one of the parts that's like makes me the most uncomfortable it's sort of, it's this joke, right, that Benny, um, by virtue of him being kind of a, 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 a squiggly, like, uh, um, always out for his own kind of thing, is essentially cycling through religious symbols and languages to try and ward off this mummy, right? Um, which, you know, sort of, to me, is a comment on the fact that, it's like, the dude will literally work for anybody, uh, for cash, you know? Mm. Um, but it's also like, hmm, hmm, I don't, I just don't like it. You know, like he's cycling through these prayers. I um, he lands on Hebrew and Imhotep is like, ah, oh, the language of the slaves. And then, you know, literally entices the man with gold to become his servant, you know, and his lackey. And yeah, cause I, we should point out, we should point out that that conversation Imhotep at that point is speaking ancient Egyptian, and so, so if we if we ignore the fact that Benny can't read the subtitles that the audience can, <laughs> then, then then what we what we get is uh, the symbol of the Star of David and a handful of gold, which is like just so like blatantly anti-Semitic. Yeah. And like you can tell what they're going for, right? Because Benny is a weaselly character and he's only out for himself and he's got no no moral compass. But to to mix that like like they do with, with like the Star of David and all this other symbology, it just reads as so terribly anti-Semitic. It was, it's probably like it's it's like, you know, like this is a horrible movie about how Empire is great, but this is like the one part in the movie where you're just like completely grossed out. Yeah, I was, you know, and, you know, it's it's all sort of supposed to be this kind of like comic relief of, you know, Benny trying to save his own ass. And, um, you know, if you take Egy- you take Egyptian, ancient Egyptian history at face value, you know, if you're pulling your historiography from the fucking Bible, then, um, you know, Jews were slaves in Egypt at one point and Hebrews were, you know, and um, so you have this like very transparent anti-Semitic trope on top of the star of David, the gold, you know, and ultimately Benny, you know, is, uh, he's killed in Hamanaptra because he is trying to take gold away from Hamanaptra. Like the whole idea is just screams of like, uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And he also gets what is maybe the darkest ending out of any of the the characters who die. The the Americans who are uh, basically flash dehydrated by Imhotep seem to at least die fairly quickly. And, you know, at least their corpses will be well preserved. Um, but, But Benny ends up literally being buried alive with a a, a, a cavernous room full of gold in the middle of the desert, never to be seen again. Uh, oh, and surrounded by flesh-eating scarabs. And, and um, who's, the, who's the other guy who has a horrible death at the hands of a flesh-eating scarab? Um, I want another one of the um, a, a Egyptian sort of like servants. Yeah, it's like it's very clear and who gets horrible death. The deaths. jailer, yeah, yeah, the um, jailer. The jailer was the one that jumped to my mind. He has like this extended and terrifying death sequence, right? So it's, we have so like these two awful. characters particularly die the worst. I think that's really telling about who this movie thinks should actually be attributed to be a villain, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, once again, <clears throat> the audience is a, 
a, a group of people inside of the Imperial Corps who are going to be viewing this story as a, you know, sort of adventure exploration film, you know, good triumphs over evil. But when you pull back the layers, what you're seeing is very transparent sort of, um, I don't know, Ash, were you the one who said it was like a passion play about empire? Like that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you read again, you know, it's, it's very much just pretty par for the course for uh, fiction about empire um, and certainly is, uh, betraying some of the anxieties that empire and empire building naturally sort of bring about in, in a population from within the imperial core, um, that uh, this type of world building um, will be taken away from you at some point, and your power yeah. will be will be removed completely um, and rendered. You will be rendered completely useless. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's a huge. I think that's ultimately that's what's at stake, right? In terms of like, you know, the Imhotep is not just threatening, you know, he's the world's uh, as it is. It's mostly in my mind, the sort of like imperialistic world order that has been built is what's being threatened, right? Um, and the, the loss of that control is ultimately what's at stake and why he must be stopped, you know? Yeah, I think, th I think this has probably been the single best conversation that has ever been recorded on the subject of the Melmi. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now we need to do the Mummy too, Ken. <laughs> we're going to release the that. entire uh, extended Melmi universe. It's oh, going to be great. We, yeah, that which would include, of course, all three Mummy films, the Mummy animated series, and the five, yes, that's right, five scorpion king films oh my god can we oh <laughs> join us for a new spin-off uh podcast series a new addition to the horror vanguard expanded universe oh, god. Uh, to be fair though i think our conversation would be you know just more nuanced versions of this one because we would just keep going yeah <laughs> yeah so man scorpion king can mommy too that'll that'll encompass enough with scorpion king i really want to talk about scorpion king <laughs> And like bad CGI rocks. Bad, seriously, there is no excuse <laughs> for that. Just just look at look at when they released Jurassic Park. If your CG was bad after Jurassic Park, you, the the fault is on whoever uh, paid. The Scorpion King looks like a PS2 cutscene, and it's <laughs> and it's glorious. Oh, I wouldn't even say that about it's PS2 cutscenes. Because they spent their whole budget on fucking paying the Rock, you know. So you gotta you gotta pay him what he's worth. So. <laughs> Get, you know, fuck CGI. I mean, the practical effects in those two films alone is fine for me. So, you know. Anyway. That's a good thanks, way to end it. Thanks, <laughs> Talking about The Rock. Thanks for, The Rock is hot too. It's still hot. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for uh, having me on. This has been super fun. I finally get to talk about, it's so good. It's the greatest film ever made. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much, uh, Mel. Please listen to uh, Protean Pirate Radio. Please read Protean Magazine. Please follow Mel on Twitter. Yes. We are starting a new segment called PPR After Dark, which Don't is you. literally just like me, Kyle, Steven, whoever else wants to come on, and we just kind of like crack a beer and talk about whatever. Um, and we might start like Twitch streaming it. So. <laughs> <laughs> if y'all want to join of course feel free let's we, talk about some crazy yes. shit we're so down so yes. down cool amazing well thanks again uh, and everyone please definitely check that stuff out listen to protein pirate radio give protein magazine your money uh yeah i don't know thanks for coming <laughs> thank you this has been great this has been so good holy shit Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>